You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Dick Tracy will double down on the indemnity of film noir. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, see? And I look this good because of portion control and pomegranates. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I had a thought. It's coming. It's gone. Thank you for all the applause about that line reading. It was phenomenal. I get it. Thank good. you it so good. much. And mine is, well, my joke is very obscure. Well, no, no, we'll talk about that. There's, <laughs> there's so much to talk about with that particular reference. Uh, but welcome, everybody, to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, where every week uh, Adam and I uh, cover a good and a bad movie based on a double feature we randomly select. And uh, sometimes we have guests, like a guest here who is returning again. Uh, she is a film noir, maybe not expert, but enthusiast, and uh, she's coming here, and I'm sure she's not going to be a secret femme fatale that will kill both of us for the podcast. It is Sarah Sorrentino. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am a femme fatale. I'm here to murder both of you. Oh, I knew it. Oh, thank you. My prayers have been answered. <laughs> <laughs> All your fears of female sexuality is right. <laughs> no, I just wanted to die. <laughs> I mean, both. <laughs> I, for the record, don't want to die, but Adam, if that's what you want to do, you know. <laughs> uh, but welcome back, Sarah, to the show. Uh, we decided to invite you because uh, I know you're at least an enthusiast of film noir. I know you're not as big on being called an expert, necessarily, but there's an interesting connection between the two of us, because in college, we both took a film noir class together. No, we didn't. We didn't? We took oh. film theory, the Hitchcock class. That's true. We did take that. But I think we did take the same film noir class, just at different points. We took it at different points, yeah, because you had graduated by the time I took the noir class. That's probably true, yes. that was. You goddamn liar. You're a liar, see? Oh, ah. My entire plan's <laughs> falling apart at the seams. <laughs> oh. Look, and to be fair, even in the Hitchcock class that we took together, I barely talked to you because I barely talked to fucking anybody. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't talk. We, we I think we met each other like right after that class, and right at the time pretty much I graduated, we actually started talking to each other. That was my first semester. There is a whole backstory that we're not going into. This isn't Thomas and Sarah Origins. Because yeah, <laughs> I guess it is now. But uh, we are here actually to talk about film noir, which I know you are a fan of, if nothing else, Sarah, because of that class or what, what really sparked that for you? I like tropes. <laughs> I like catching them. Like noir is very formulaic and you can catch everything. And it's not like you can tell the story based off of it, but you can tell why certain characters are the way that they are based off of if you know what the formula is. And I like that. They're really sexist too, which is kind of cool. Like, it's like, wow, look at all this sexist stuff going on. Yeah. 
that that's that's very true at the same time but i mean there's still an interesting factor to like they're very much of their time these movies but they've influenced so much and you could so like you said there's like sort of a plug and play element with like okay here's the basic tense of every film noir with the red herring and the femme fatale and all this other stuff there's some appreciation in the devil in the details as it were uh, so yeah, we're doing this because of uh, Nightmare Alley is coming up, the new Guillermo del Toro movie, which is a remake of an old film noir and has a lot of those kind of uh, tropes and elements to it, I guess. I mean, Sarah, you can be the judge because you actually saw the movie already at a preview screening. I saw the movie. Uh, I haven't seen the original Nightmare Alley, though, so I can't compare it. But it 100% is Guillermo just making a, like a noir film as he does you know what i mean him with making an anime like pacific rim and stuff like that and the gothic romance with crimson peak even the way scenes are played is almost it's 100 percent a noir and did that work for you with the final movie or is it you don't have to go into full detail but the thumbs up thumbs down what are you thinking i didn't like it oh i've heard that from <laughs> people that bums me out <laughs> yeah, i'm so sorry i'm sorry because i am I love Crimson Peak. I love Pacific Rim. That's why I mentioned them specifically. It didn't work for me with this one. I I think it's because he didn't take enough risk with putting his own twist on it. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's it's all ruined now. There's no point in continuing the episode, but we will. Because uh, we're talking about two older noir films. Or, you know, we included neo-noir in this because at the end of our last episode... We picked a good and a bad feature from uh, choices that Adam had two good ones. We ended up with Double Indemnity as our good feature. I had the two bad ones, and we ended up with uh, Dick Tracy, though the badness might be debatable to some degree on that. We'll talk about that as we move forward. But I, I did want to ask Adam, what about what is your yeah. history with film noir yourself? Uh, I'm a fan, for sure. I definitely got started more on the neo-noir stuff than I did classic film noir. Like, I can honestly say probably the first one I remember seeing is the version of Blade Runner with the over, uh, like, the the um, dialogue or whatever over yeah, it. The voice the narration. Over, right? Yeah, the narration. Uh, and that was sort of my first experience with what sort of some of the tropes of noir were. And then from there, I took in everything I could, like old bogey movies and, like, Jimmy Cagney movies and all that stuff. I just kind of went and found everything I could. And then anytime, like, a new version of war came out i was always excited um to see it and especially because uh, they definitely did a thing for a while like there'd be certain trailers that would come out and they wouldn't really even give away that it was more of a neo-noir or noir tinged movie and that's always a surprise when you see it and you're like oh fuck yeah dude like this is great yeah and admittedly like with me that really started off with uh, like a lot of things i watched a parody first and then grew to see the influences later where um as a young kid, I watched Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which I'm surprised, like, because if you don't know, that's a movie starring Steve Martin where basically he interacts with a bunch of intercut footage of old noir movies. Like, Humphrey Bogart plays his completely inept, drunken, like, co-detective, and they just edit around it. It's it's a very weird little movie that, in retrospect, I'm surprised I found as funny as I did when I was a kid because it's so heavily based on, like, noir tropes. And knowing any of that, but that kind of opened the door and exposed me to especially a lot of the older ones they ended up watching around in high school. And it's like Sarah said, it's a it's a familiar genre, and you know the tropes so well, but you like seeing how some of these things play out, despite that. Um, but you know what, let's go ahead and go into our uh, movies now. Uh, like I said, Double Indemnity and Dick Tracy, though first we'll start with Double Indemnity. The chilling masterpiece, Double Indemnity. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent. 
It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. If it wasn't for Norton and his strike pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it, and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet. Remember, the best of Hollywood features are yours on this station. So Double Indemnity came out uh, July 3rd, 1944 from uh, director Billy Wilder. Uh, he co-wrote the script with Raymond Chandler based on a novel by James M. Kane. And, uh, of course, if you know anything about mystery and stuff, Raymond Chandler is a pretty big name for any stuff like The Big Sleep and stuff like that. Though I do love, like, doing research for this, hearing how much, like, he and Billy Wilder fucking loathed each other while writing this movie. Billy Wilder would constantly fuck with Raymond Chandler with stuff like he would have his lady friends call him while they were writing and constantly make fun of like Raymond Chandler, who was like sexually repressed and shit like that. Jesus. It was just like a bunch of like, he was fucking with him the whole time. And like Raymond Chandler sent him like a list of complaints and a resignation letter at a certain point. <laughs> Real nice guy. No, totally nice. Real, guy. Uh, healthy work environment. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Even though it surprisingly resulted in double identity, which is a classic noir. One of the big ones. I'm sure Sarah, you had seen this before, I'm certain, given you're a yeah. fan of the genre, yeah. It's probably one of the mo more memorable ones. Because, again, I've seen, a few, like, so many at a certain time that I started to meld them all together. But Indemnity is so, like, she especially is very, like, memorable in the way that she looks and her scenes. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, this is a good one. I like that this one isn't about a detective. No, I think what's interesting is that, like, watching this again, especially, this feels almost like it's a neo-noir just made in the height of noir. Like, the main character, Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray, feels like somebody who would have been, like, inspired by old detective movies as a meek insurance agent that he is and want to become something bigger. Yeah. That's what I kind of love, is that he's, he's a dude who just has the confidence to be an insurance salesman. And then as he goes along, it's just like, oh, he gets the bullishness to be like, I can be the coolest motherfucker in the room and romance Barbara Stanwyck and make this all <laughs> work out. And it totally works out for him. There's no repercussions at all. Yeah, he really tried his best to make insurance salesmen look cool. <laughs> Did he succeed, Sarah? No, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he ends up shot <laughs> and on the ground. He flew too close to the sun. <laughs> Very Icarus-like. And would you say, then, that it deserves its reputation as one of the more celebrated film noir movies? Oh, yeah. I think this is one of the best. Absolutely. It's, it's not my favorite, but it's very, very good. And what do you think makes it stand out from the pack, especially considering it has, like, all the familiar tropes and stuff? But it plays with the tropes, especially for the detective character. I think a lot of noir, when they're going to play with the tropes, they're playing with, like guessing game of who's the good girl and who's the femme fatale but i don't ever see as much uh, playing with like who the detective type role especially since he kind of falls for it like usually the the male protagonist is supposed to like be onto her ways the whole time but he he deeply falls into it the whole time like for most of the movie barbara stanwick is having a lot of fun 
and uh, that makes it better. I don't know if Mac Murray is like the most memorable uh, detective type character, but she is. She looks great. Adam, what about you? Are you a fan of this one in terms of the noir genre? Yeah, definitely. I have a little bit of a story about how I even know about this movie. Um, and it involves a movie that we watched uh, previously for the show, Thomas, that you were not a fan of. The spoof uh, Fatal Instinct with Armand Asante. I haven't um, seen it yet. I've been told I have to. Well, the entire like main criminal activity is to get her husband aboard a train and he has to die at a certain time in a certain way right. in order to get mm-hmm. the insurance policy payoff. And I was like, this is so silly. Like, how could this, you know, th- of course this isn't a spoof movie. And then within like two minutes of research, I was like, oh no, that's the plot of an old movie, like completely. So <laughs> I, had to, I had to go back and watch it. And I was probably, I don't know, 18, 19. And I like instantly fell in love with this movie. This is, if it's not my all-time favorite classic noir, it's in the top three to top five easily. Yeah, um, I, I could agree with that. I, I completely agree with your logic behind it too, Sarah. A, Stanwyck is just eating up the scenery in this. She's so perfect in this. Watching it a second time, you really catch on to it. But even in the first time, when she's first at his apartment, she kisses him and like turns away. She has a little like corner of her lip smile. You know, like mm-hmm. she's she's doing. She knows she's pulling some shit. Um, <laughs> And I do like the flip of the male character. Like, usually, you know, he's the one grabbing her by the arms and, you know, I know what you're up to, blah, blah, blah. He's instantly like, oh, she's so pretty. <laughs> like, you know. But like, he tries. He's like, I went bowling because I was so mad about it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, so tough. <laughs> I went yeah. bowling. I was so hot-tempered and boiled up about it. <laughs> yeah, he had to go bowling to throw his balls at phallic symbols. <laughs> he's keyed up and turned on by her. Like he just can't resist her. Uh, Even if he thinks like there's something going on, he's just blinded. And you don't see that a lot where the actual sort of, especially in the classics and and from this era, the forties where the femme fatale characters really the brains behind the entire operation. And she's playing every man for a sucker in it. Sometimes they undercut the femme fatale Mm. and be like, Oh, she's up. She's over her head. She couldn't handle it. You know what I mean? And then he has to go save her from herself or whatever she started to scheme to the end. I mean, like only she's only caught off guard because apparently she caught some feels. But like to the end, she's like, no, nah, I didn't love you. <laughs> she yeah, really right. got him. I was going to say, though, you, you know, you brought up that you saw this kind of this spoof of this first. And then that's what Thomas said, too, with uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I feel like I saw Roger Rabbit before I watched any noirs. Right. True. And that none of it clicked until I took that noir class. And then at that point, I was like, "Oh my god, this is the this is also a perfect parody." Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid is also really really good. I actually bought it recently. I was upset that I hadn't already owned it. Yeah, I mean, like Roger Rabbit is probably like the urtex most of us didn't <laughs> even bring up. It's like it's true because like it has a lot of like even the elements of this like particularly with like the way it uses L.A. as a location is very similar to this movie. And even stuff like Fred McMurray is totally wearing like the outfit that Bob Hoskins would wear. Obviously, there's a height difference, as you can tell from Fred McMurray. Being How like a- dare you? <laughs> Bob Hoskins was a short king. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing. Bob Hoskins, short king. We res- this is a house that respects Bob Hoskins, ma'am. But uh, I, I still think at the same time, like, what, what works is, like, despite the fact that Freddie Murray is so much taller, it's like we mentioned he's so much more pathetic. I think that kind of works because a lot of people were first exposed to him, even myself, from, like, the old Disney movies, like the Shaggy Dog that he would do later, like Shaggy Dog or Absent-Minded Professor, a.k.a. OG Flubber, before Robin Williams and the CG mm-hmm. goop thing. 
cremated, basically. Um, and I think, like, he has that same kind of, like, pathetic edge here. But when he's trying to play it cool, it works just well enough to where, like, the whole movie is told from his perspective, literally. The whole framing device of him saying it into this microphone. It's initially, it feels like, oh, this is an engaging mystery. But as you go along, you just kind of realize, like, oh, he's so pathetic. He's like, I have to tell my boss this cool thing I did. The one cool thing I ever did. I have to go in lengthy detail recording on a recording device, which is dumb. Who would record a long, lengthy thing on, like, some kind of audio thing? That would be dumb. It, this is the original true crime podcast. <laughs> exactly. But, but no, I think that really works for him, especially as you guys mentioned, contrasting with Barbara Stanwyck, who right from the start, like, she's totally playing, like, oh, I'm the innocent housewife, but really I have something to hide with the anklet. I just love the idea that, like, in these old noir movies, that, like, the idea of sex, she's like, oh, she's wearing an anklet. And immediately Fred McMurray's like, va, va, voom, an anklet. She showed ankle. <laughs> she showed ankle, it's true. But, like, she, she really managed to, like, I think, create so much sexuality despite being in firmly code times. Which, if you don't know, was, like, at this time, it was, like, in the middle of the production code era before the MPAA, where it was firmly, like, you can't have any of these women be so sexual, and the villains have to face their repercussions, these evil film noir protagonists, to the point where, like, this movie almost had an ending where Fred McMurray went to the gas chamber. And in retrospect, it makes so much sense, because I love the ending of this movie. And how immediately it's just like, nah, it just cuts off, it's anticlimactic, that's it. That's all you get. It's kind of the perfect ending for the story. Oh, I mean, it's climatic. He's literally on the ground bleeding. We know what's going to happen after that. So, right. yeah, leaving it off with him and his, you know, his friend kind of just being like, ah, you're fucked. That's nice. That's how it should end. Yeah. Which, shout out, of <laughs> course, how we have not mentioned Edward G. Robinson, one of the classic, like, actors of this era, who, like... With a lot of other people that I've seen these old film noir movies, like, a lot of them were also people I first saw in, like, old Looney Tunes cartoons when they would parody these people. Edward G. Robinson's the one guy where I'm like, I'm not convinced he wasn't actually a Looney Tunes character. Because, like, he, he doesn't seem quite human. He feels like he would be a Roger Rabbit extra. <laughs> <laughs> I like him, though. He was really good. Oh, yeah. And particularly here. I think it's him and Stanwyck. This is their movie. Um, I agree. Not to take away from McMurray, but my favorite cartoon character in the movie, if you want to go with that, is their boss. Like the head <laughs> guy of the insurance company. That guy's so Just because I have a big office doesn't mean I'm yeah. dumb. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what it means. I don't think it was an accident at all, at all, I said. Like, all right. It's got a lot of why I never energy. <laughs> Out of that you know he puts on leather gloves to dry. Like he's one of those guys. And an ascot. And one of those like yes. helmets with little goggles on them. Yes. You know, this is one of the first noir movies I ended up seeing after I got kind of the bug from the parodies. And what works is like it so displays that particular time that any kind of issue you might have with like, oh, it's old and foggy. It's just like, well, it feels like it's just more of like a time capsule of this particular era and this particular like time in LA and with like the way that these people interact with each other, even though it's clearly heightened. Like people in 1944 weren't actually doing all this bullshit, <laughs> but it feels like it's like so indicative, like the era you see from like old photographs and shit like that. It's, it's, it's one of those movies that really puts you in that specific time and place. When I think of like, old noir or whatever and I, I think i even wrote it in my online review to me this is like almost like the blueprint um especially moving forward with a lot of the same like obviously like sarah you mentioned the tropes and everything and they all are here a hundred percent yeah they turn some of them on their head or whatever but when i think of classic film noir this is like 
the one that pops in my head um, from the way it looks, from the way people are dressed, from the narration, from the, you know, just people getting in over their head to uh, double crosses on triple crosses to it's just it's all right here in this package and for that i mean to me it's timeless because you're still seeing this done to this day um and and the same beat for beat almost so i mean yeah this is just an absolute perfect example of classic film noir and it's even weird with like the despite the fact that i agree a lot of movies are kind of chasing this kind of like back and forth and this tension these thrills like, at the same time, it doesn't have even, like, modern movies don't have that same kind of, like, even ability to be at all sexual in the way this movie is. Despite not being, like, overt, like, like this ain't no, you know, like, erotic thriller kind of thing. Like, for the time, yeah. and even to, like, this day, it feels like it still is oozing with so much, like, lust and sexuality, despite the fact that it feels chaste in terms of modern perspective on that. Like, I love the well, fact that it's able to evoke that without being too overtly exploitative. Well, I think that's why. I think you just hit it exactly on the head why it's still so sexually and built with lust and everything. Because, you know, master storytellers are people who know what they're doing. They don't have to have, you know, raunchy sex scenes and all that stuff. I mean, that's fine if that's the way you want to tell your story. Yeah, it's it's not always necessary. And I, I think this movie, its limitations with the code at the time and everything only helped to serve it. Bring back the code. extreme censorship let's go (laughs) just really make it hard for people now (laughs) that's what necessity is the mother of invention fuck it let's do that um but what do you think uh sarah in terms of like you mentioned that femme fatales can always be so undercut in certain movies what do you think makes this one work especially for like not just even the femme fatale but we also do have the good girl in the form of the stepdaughter in this movie how do you think like they kind of handle both of those female characters i I think it's okay Uh, i will say i've there's better good girls i don't know i i kind of like it because i'm always annoyed in noir when he has the good girl at home and he's like goes and makes out with the femme fatale on the side but that's like another reason they depict it that way to be like you know she's stealing your man you (laughs) you can't like her you're supposed to identify with the good girl this one he's obviously not doing like he's not trying to get with the daughter she is kind of like meek and on the side though over the whole thing and he's just trying to like emotionally like be there for her feeling bad that he murked her dad yeah i think overall it's good i just i've seen better uh honestly every time i do like a comparison i just want to bring up murder my sweet um thomas have you seen murder my sweet i have not no adam I'm going to say probably. Uh, it's not popping in like from name recognition, but more than likely. I'm leaving. Make uh, <laughs> oh, it easy. Film credit, all that. I like when you're not sure who's the good girl and who's the femme fatale. Mm-hmm. That switch up is probably my favorite like way you can make a twist in, in noir. Or like just playing with it and being not sure the whole time. Murder My Sweet specifically has the stepmother the husband and the daughter from the first marriage same family dynamic the detective character is emotionally manipulated and sexually manipulated by the stepmother and is starts to get involved with the daughter and uh this movie holds off on that and includes instead another character that the you know the daughter is involved with that kind of undercut some fun things you could do with having a good girl character 
on the side. Right. I do like at the same time that like with the Gene Heather plays Lola, who is the, the daughter character. I like the fact that he's still completely doing like any kind of like help to her for selfish needs on his own end where she's like no i'm trying to feel better about myself for murdering your dad i like the fact that it's not like an inherently sexual relationship it's still manipulative in a really cruel way that he's not really realizing and the only thing he gets out of it ultimately is just that knowledge of like wait her asshole boyfriend is with barbara stanwick all the time oh this is completely fucking up my thing i don't even give a shit about you anymore i'm leaving the hollywood ball i'm leaving you out here in the woods <laughs> to go fuck off it's self-centered. Almost all the time, these characters are self-centered until they snap out of it because they realize the woman was evil all along. <laughs> and what I also like, even in general, with like just the way Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler like constructed the story, is just the fact that like there's so much tension building, even in scenes you don't really suspect there to be. Like I think that's the big thing that makes this feel kind of timeless. It's just that like with any individual scene, there's still tension building up at any point. Where it's like, oh, hey, Barbara Stanwyck's going to come up to your apartment, Fred McMurray. You haven't seen her in a while. Oh, shit, Edward G. Robinson showed up because of the little man in his chest. Which I love that whole running gag. And that just there are so many points where, despite this being an older movie, you're still on the edge of your seat in a modern context. Like, oh, fuck, is he going to get caught? Are they both going to get caught? You're, it's making you side with these awful people just because you're engaged in the mystery in this way. And I think Wilder was like a master at that. With that many individual, even in like his comedies, he managed to really do that. With like just building up tension despite the fact that it's kind of a very simple and innocent situation in theory. Our main protagonist just wears his fucking guilt like on his face constantly. <laughs> like when he's up at the boss's office and then she comes in and the way he's standing there like, uh, you know, by the fireplace with his head and his hands and they're like, dude, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> like what the fuck? Relax. It reminds like, me of Telltale Heart. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. yeah it's a very good. Comparison. Especially when he said he's like, I was walking and I heard no footsteps. I was a dead man. It's yeah. like, yeah, that definitely reminded me of Telltale Heart. They could have dived into that even more if they wanted to. Yeah. Or even the stuff at the supermarket is my favorite stuff where if I was somebody in that small supermarket, I would immediately be <laughs> sus <laughs> of these two. Oh, just God. like, yeah. hey, can I get that soap while you guys are clearly talking to each other about something insidious? <laughs> I want to live in that supermarket. He's looking at like cans of condensed milk, fully dressed. (laughs) She's got her sunglasses and like a veil on, looking at soap directly behind him. And they're talking at full volume. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see the person on the other side of the condensed milk, like grabbing the mac and cheese, like just looking at him. Like, uh, you can't go back there. See? Okay, uh, sir. Um, when that lady told him to reach for something she couldn't reach and she was mad, she's like, why do they put things I need in places I can't reach? That's me. That's me. <laughs> That's me at the supermarket talking to any tall person directly around. Please get me the canola oil from the top they are, shelf. They are fucking me at this supermarket. <laughs> don't they know I spend hundreds of dollars here a year? Um, <laughs> God, don't you guys just hate it when something doesn't go your way exactly as you planned? Right? Right? Yeah. Anyway, I'm leaving. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the thing is that, like, even in these, like, really, like, small confined spaces, like, Wilder manages to create so much tension. And it really, like, works for, even though we're pointing out all these, like, holes technically. Stylistically, in the moment, you don't give a shit. This movie, like, flies by. 
at like the hour mm-hmm. 45 minutes uh, because it's just able to engross you so much and all that. And even like I mentioned, like the tension of just Edward G. Robinson constantly on these like lengthy monologues. I love like there's the one scene where he's talking about like all the different poisonings and the suicides and stuff. Yeah, that was such a good monologue. Oh, so, or even the other one where like Barbara Stanwyck is on the phone. And he's like, hold on a second. And then he just goes lengthy for, with Frank Murray. It's like, there's a dame <laughs> on your phone. And then he fucks up. <laughs> Marge. Marge, yes. I'm sure she drinks out of the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I love all that stuff. What would you say, Sarah, like makes it really stick out for you in terms of like the actual sort of mystery or whodunit angle, even though we know whodunit, but at the same time, like the actual kind of like the unraveling of the mystery. Do you think this is one of the better examples of that in the film noir where like how all the best laid plans just completely fall apart? It's more, not like we're trying to find out the mystery in this one which is a little bit, it's, it's the opposite. They are going to unravel themselves. We're going to see what people figure out about what they did wrong. But kind of, that's why it's more like Telltale Heart <laughs> than an actual noir where we're trying to figure out what happened. Um, I mean, really, the only mystery parts is when things start to come out between Barbara Stanwyck and, what's his name, Nico? Oh, uh, yeah, Nino Zacchetti. Nino. Yeah, uh, that was like the big, like, oh, my God. In my mind, a noir is the detective who's blind to everything and is slowly uncovering the truth. Whereas this guy is fully in the problem to begin with and creates it. Um, not all noirs like that. A lot of noirs, mobsters, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with like a detective or mystery as much. It just has to do with grisly people fighting each other and, and women being shocked. This is not a classic noir to me. It's something that Adam said earlier is like, that's what you think of. This is this is this is like playing with noir a lot to me. It's kind of like Kiss Me Deadly, where you think you know what you're getting into because it, sa- it says it's a noir film, but it's not the classic detective when a dame walks in and says uh, her husband got killed. So you're saying it's more of like the urtext for like neo noir. This is one of the early examples of like really subverting the expectations of a noir movie. Even neo noir gets thrown around a lot in a way. Like neo noir is sometimes cyberpunk. Or, like, it's just because there's some computers involved. Or neo-noir is just because it's colorized. Or, you know what I mean? There's so many things to it. It's hard to say what is noir and what's a neo-noir. And you kind of just decide. I don't know for sure. When I think of a classic noir, I'm thinking of the detective tale. When I think of a classic noir that goes a little bit further than that, I think of, like, this or um, Kiss Me Deadly is still a detective tale but plays with like nuclear bombs and red scare and stuff like that you know that defining the war and you know noir is a headache oh i mean i agree i think that's the thing even in choosing movies for this particular episode or even we did a film noir episode way back in the day and i had the good picks it was another example where like it, it's a hard genre to necessarily nail down because i've seen people list stuff like treasure of the sierra madre as a noir movie which is a weird example of that. I can kind of see it, um, maybe mainly because probably it's like bogey. I think is why people <laughs> kind of put it in that camp. But I think that's what's so interesting is like it's such a malleable genre that you can't quite pin it down. Even with like also neo noir, I think has a similar thing with that. I'm guess Adam, what do you define as like a classic noir? Would you say it's like an indemnity, or is there something more like classic that you uh, consider? Adam said it was indemnity. I don't. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I did. I did, and uh, you know what? For uh, the little bit of integrity I might have left, I'm going to stick with that. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I think this is absolutely. I think this is absolutely sort of uh, the, like I said, the blueprint for classic noir. Um, I get where Sarah's coming from. Uh, where I think it's because it's sort of the most prime example is the sort of hard-boiled detective story with the femme fatale and everything like that. That's probably, you know, the leading example if you were to ask anybody what classic film noir is. And I, I mean, I can't disagree with that at all. We still have everything that those movies have in this. It's just that we're following an insurance agent who's playing detective. Um, I, I think that's really the only major difference that we really, really have. But I think other than that, this is, like I said, I, I think this is by the book classic film noir. I don't agree. Okay. <laughs> because he's not playing detective. He's playing criminal. This is an everyday salary man playing criminal. It's a thriller. It's a psychological thriller with noir elements. Right, right. What I guess I mean is, as far as playing detective, I mean in the sense of the film noir where he's playing the tough guy. He's playing the hard-nosed sort of guy, uh, you, you know, where typically in classic film noir, the detective would be. Now, the fact that he's a criminal, yeah, of course, that's a difference. But he's still playing that, wanting to be that archetype that we're used to in classic noir. He's just an idiot. Well, I think it's more that, like, he wants the aesthetics of a detective, but he also wants the coolness of being the criminal, like, in the way of the older, yeah. like, like something like The Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney, where it's about, yes. like, oh, I'm the cool gangster at the same time I'm also the... He wants, like, the best of both worlds, and that's what really, I think, is his crumbling point. Sarah, would you at least say something like The Maltese Falcon is maybe more classic noir? Is that more of, like, a yes. blueprint? Okay. Any any Marlowe is right. a classic. Yes. Uh, therefore, I win the argument! <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing I'll say about this in particular is that I think for this film, we are almost looking at like right before he could have been the detective. He's offered that detective job or like the quote unquote, like that version of the detective job being the insurance agent detective. And he turns it down because he already chose to be the criminal first. Right. I mean, if anything, Edward G. Robinson is the actual detective of the story. Yes. Because he's the one that has That's like true. all the hunches and all this other stuff. And I love that even Robinson didn't want to do this movie initially. Cause he's like, well, I'm a star. I can't be third bill to Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. That's not going to work for me. And then he just realized like, Oh, I can steal all these scenes and get paid the exact same amount. So like, fuck it. And he, he fucking owned it. Like any single time he like pops in with like these monologues that we're talking about, or even just like the small little details, like even at the very end when he comes in on Fred McGurry telling his whole story and Fred McGurry even says like, oh, I'm getting at the full speech. It's like, you're all washed up. Well, thank you for making it short. I appreciate that. It's like, even at that <laughs> point, he's totally stealing the big final death scene for Fred McMurray. Everyone's looking at Edward G. Robinson, that whole point. Like it's a movie where like somebody like Edward G. Robinson totally sweeps it underneath. Fred Murray's feet because he's basically like a scarecrow in detective's clothing trying to be the villain all at the same time. I agree. We, ha we have a whole other movie to talk about, so why don't we go into some final thoughts here on Double Indemnity. Sarah, your final thoughts on it. Uh, final thoughts, great film, um, excellent noir, <laughs> even though I was debating it. Um, it's what people point to when they think of a film noir, uh, along with like Maltese Falcon. Those are probably the most popular, I would think. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to rewatch it again. Um, it, it had been a while. I didn't watch it since college, but I remembered it. Probably the most memorable story because of how many different twists they take. That's true. It was part of that curriculum, and I hadn't watched it since then either, and still holds up pretty well. But Adam, your final thoughts on Double Indemnity. 
I mean, it's a classic for a reason. You know, it is well regarded uh, for all the right reasons. It, it, like I said, it, it does everything it's trying to do, and it does it really, really well. Um, and it's sort of, you know, yes, it's everything you've seen in a lot of film noir movies, but that doesn't make it tiresome at the same time in this one. Uh, it breezes by. There's enough twists and turns. There's enough uh, tense moments. Uh, everything to just still make this a very exciting movie, especially for a, you know, 1944 classic film noir movie that nowadays, I, I don't think new audiences would really, especially the younger audiences, you know, not to discredit them, but I don't think there's much of hunger for a movie like this anymore. And uh, it's kind of a shame because this is still a classic uh, that tells a timeless story expertly. Yeah, sorry, Nightmare Alley. <laughs> Ooh, burn! <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> Guillermo's listening. He's such a loyal listener. He's gonna be so bummed when he hears this. I'm so sorry, <laughs> Sarah. Why? I'm gonna go cry in my big house full of props. I love Guillermo. It's not his fault. It is his fault. But <laughs> <laughs> it could have been done. It could have been done. I think. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just briefly say final thoughts. Like, I agree with both you guys, but I, I'll also state that, like, whether or not you can debate, like, oh, is it classic noir? Is it kind of subverting the tropes? Sort of less formulaic than the other movies of its era. Uh, despite all of that, I feel, still think, like, it feels like such a true cinematic classic for, like, everyone involved. Including, even, like, a Billy Wilder who's made, like, seven of those <laughs> kind of movies. Uh, but it, it still is, like, it's a stellar movie. And if you're afraid of watching an old movie that's all black and white, um, this one still entertains. Definitely give it a chance. Even though we just spoiled, like, the whole thing <laughs> for you, basically. But, yeah, let's, uh, before we go into our next feature, here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Check out what's been going on with the Pop Culture Cosmo Show and the PCC Multiverse. I would say that E3 maybe isn't the event that it once was, but everybody still plans their event around the E3 schedule. Steven Spielberg could throw out a gum commercial and we'd all watch it because it's Steven Spielberg. Dragon Age 4 is carrying, I think, the future of Bioware on its shoulders. That's the Pop Culture Cosmo Show. And the PCC Multiverse. Catch our shows on Worldwide Radio seven days a week and right here on the ESO Network. And uh, now we're on to our next feature, Dick Tracy. When it's time to fight crime. Calling Dick Tracy. Calling Dick Tracy. He's your man. Tracy. 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 You mind if I call you Dick? Okay, boys, let's go. Walt Disney Pictures presents Warren Beatty. Make a note, Pat. They waive their right to a phone call. As Dick Tracy. Aren't you gonna frisk me? Now that's what I call a date. I think Tracy drives you crazy, doesn't he? When do we get Dick Tracy? Everywhere I turn! It's Tracy! 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 This summer. He's coming to a theater near you. I'm on my way. Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy uh, came out June 15th, 1990 from director, star, producer, owner of the rights to this old character, Warren Beatty. And um, I picked this movie, even though for a quote unquote bad pick that we do for the show, this is definitely one of those to me where like it has like, I guess like a device reputation. I know Adam is not a fan, especially of the star of this film, as we've talked about previously on the show. But I find this movie maybe not to be 
that good, but extremely fascinating as a movie on, like, so many levels that I've wanted to talk about in the show for a while. And I'm especially curious from Sarah, because she never has seen this before, right? This was your first time viewing Dick Tracy. First time watch. Yes, and uh, what are your thoughts on the magnum opus of Dick Tracy? What do you think, Thomas? What do you think? I want I want your opinion. You you know me. No, that's the thing. I, I know your taste. I've, like, listened to so many of your shows, and I've talked with you so much, but... This is the one where I'm like, I don't quite know, because I think you could go either way. I don't know where you would land. Adam, what do you think? I'm thinking you, you, you kind of hate it, if I what? had to guess. Why, why would you think I hate it? It's not sexist. Because mm-hmm. I don't know. You made me pick. I wasn't ready I, to defend either choice. I absolutely loved it. I think it's beautiful. I, and cool and neat and Warren Beatty is not cool. He looked weird in it, but everyone else was so good. Oh my god! That accurately describes, I think, my feelings as well. Is that everything around Warren Beatty as a star in this movie, like he is the black hole of or yellow hole, I guess, given his attire of this whole movie, and he just feels like he's just sort of like the straight man for everyone to play off of. But at the same time, everyone plays off him beautifully. Not just the actors, but like the production design. And the songs and the music oh. and all this other stuff. It's just like there's so much around him that's so fucking great. The prosthetics, the yes. the painted backgrounds, the the colors, amazing. Absolutely love it. I'm like so excited. I wish I had watched it with like Speed Racer as like a double feature. That's a good double feature, honestly. They have a very similar vibe, even though one is very digital, the other one is very pre-digital. Yeah, it's just very goofy, like recognizable actors playing very goofy characters <laughs> recognizable meaning every recognizable person <laughs> who was around in like <laughs> yeah. 1990s in this movie it's crazy but adam we've said before you're not a fan of Beatty, and you have said before yes. you're not a fan necessarily of this movie does that still contend in this time let's put it this way i'm a fan of everything about this movie but warren Beatty. the fucking guy has zero charisma Every scene, his mouth is just open and his eyes go a little wide when he has to react. (laughs) Honestly, like, the thing I kept thinking of this whole movie is, like, he looks like he's either about to sneeze or just sneezed. (laughs) But no, other than that, I I mean, dude, I love the matte paintings of the buildings where they're all at the angle like a comic strip would be. I I love the, the characters, the villain design. Pacino is so crazy in this movie yeah yeah i that i am so on board for it a hundred percent and then william forsyth plays such a great heavy as flat top but then you got madonna who's like the perfect femme fatale in this movie and then even um forgive me i can never remember her name and i know she just recently passed but she plays his major love, main love interest. Uh, Glenn Heedy. Yeah, Glenn Heedy. She's great in this. I even don't mind Charlie Corsmo in this, and I usually hate that fucking kid. I think this movie is super fun and solid. It's just the problem is that it's settled down with the lead character that I don't give a fuck about. I still feel like I had no problem with the film, though, despite him being blah. I've seen other films like this. Another film that I watched recently that... 100% is almost like this is uh, the spirit. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Right, yeah. We've yeah. we've covered the spirit on this show in the past noir episode. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's a very, like, vanilla main character. I mean, I guess that actor's doing a little bit more, but he's still very boring. They, they do this a lot. 
Well, I mean, I would argue at least with the spirit, it has more of a problem of like Warren Beatty, for all the faults we have about him, directs this movie beautifully, as opposed to like mm-hmm. Frank Miller, who never actually fucking directed the movie on his own with that movie. And you can tell yeah. at every second. Like there are so many shots where like, in terms of like comic book movies that's taken up so much of the zeitgeist, this is a comic book movie. And it's like based on a comic strip and every frame is intentionally designed to look like this is a panel from a comic strip. And it's miraculous to see, especially with like just matte paintings. It has all the energy of like early Universal or Disney MGM theme parks where it's like, this is how the movies are made. It feels so much like that. It reminds me of the Batman roller coasters at Six Flags. Right. Yes. Yeah, so like, <laughs> it, it totally. It looks like it's a let's set. Anytime you're in a single set of this movie, you're like, I want to walk around in that. I want to get a churro and hang around in the fucking like cellar where the <laughs> fucking boiler's about to blow up and shit like that. It, it, you want to walk around this place. And and the music too, uh, especially when it was like the sweeping like superhero music, also very much reminded me of Batman. Are are you saying? That Danny Elfman, a year after Batman came out, completely just reused his same score and changed a couple notes, Sarah. We're on to you, Elfman. We're on to you, bro. I had no idea. I didn't look into it. I really just watched this right before. I watched this. I ate a peanut butter jelly sandwich and I sat down and recorded this. This was definitely a movie I saw when I was a kid because I loved Batman 89 so much when I was younger. And this is definitely the first mm-hmm. in a long line of movies we've talked about on the show where it's like in the early 90s, after that movie was the massive success that it was. Studios were like, wow, this Batman movie did really well. How about instead of adapting similar superheroes like Wonder Woman and like even others, maybe the Marvel Library, let's do old 40s fucking pulp bullshit <laughs> like this and The Phantom and The Rocketeer, some of which are very good movies. Like we love The Rocketeer on the show. But at the same time, none of those were successful for obvious reasons that in, even in like the early 90s, no one gave a shit about these like 40s era detectives and whatever. <laughs> You had the four, Dick Tracy, you had the Shadow, you had the Phantom, and you had the Rocketeer. Well, yes, I do love the Rocketeer. I think it's great. I think the Shadow and the Phantom both try to have the same energy as the Dick Tracy. They both fail miserably. You have not seen a faithful recreation of just a comic strip, I'd argue, up until another sort of film noir uh, comic book movie was Sin City, where visually it copies the comic book as much as it possibly can mm-hmm. um yeah, this movie's good the colors are great the costuming's great everything's like i said everything really works madonna's great in it this her songs her original songs are great in it no surprise that her and warren Beatty were dating for a while after this which is just weird. <laughs> oh my god i would definitely recommend anybody out there if you watch this movie and you're like how could they have dated what was that like watch the madonna truth or dare documentary to see, like, Madonna and him fully on the rocks. Like, there's a whole scene oh. where, like, Madonna is going off on her usual Madonna thing. And then fucking Warren Beatty's just like, ah, oh, she loves talking. She really she loves said, talking. <laughs> just sat on the couch. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she loves yeah, 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 There we go. There's Madonna. Loves to talk. Oh, wow. <laughs> Great. Romance is dead. He's just a wet blanket, man. Yeah, sometimes I can get past the lead, you know, not working in the rest of the movie, working around him. But for me, I have a little bit of a harder time with this because the fucking character is the name of the movie. He is the IP. Like, you're supposed to want to follow Dick Tracy and see him take down Big Boy and all these guys. And I'm rooting for the villains the whole fucking movie. I really like how this film introduces us to everything, though. It's so fast and, like, precise. 
it is really well directed. I like insanely. Like I really don't feel like there was a misstep until the end, which I thought was I was like kind of like ah come on, because <laughs> they were just trying to I don't know. I felt like it was just trying to wrap everything up a little bit too quickly, but. Overall, I really, really liked this. I, I'm really impressed. I, I do want to bring up one thing, though, and I don't think y'all have ever seen this. Uh, this is also a movie that I knew existed, but I never really, I never watched. And I didn't even know about the like convention of all the characters being brightly colored and having prosthetics and stuff like that until I saw a music video by ASAP Rocky for his song Babushka. It's them dressed up like the villains from this movie. Schoolboy Q is wearing the full prosthetics, like, face and everything. Well, I mean, even the iconography of this movie, I think Adam was talking about just the fact of, like, oh, Dick Tracy's such a wet blanket, and I agree. But I think even in terms of, like, if you've ever read any of those comic strips, which are very, like, formulaic to a degree, and then they get weird. There's, like, a whole point in the 60s where Dick Tracy goes to the fucking moon. It's such a weird bit that occurred between, like, Candy saying we're going to go to the moon and then the actual moon landing. They was Dick Tracy just went to the moon and rockets and bullshit. It's really weird. <laughs> those those comics got really That's weird. That's great. <laughs> this movie and I think even the comic strip is very cognizant of like Dick Tracy is the conduit from which we encounter like all these different villain characters. Like I agree that oh you're kind of like rooting for the villains. I think the movie is very intentionally kind of doing that where Dick Tracy is just kind of like a plot device for you to meet up with all these different villains. And I think Beatty kind of knows that to a certain degree, but at the same time, there's the weird factor of, like, just because of who Warren Beatty is, it's also an insane ego trip for him. Like, I really wish he hadn't starred in the movie. He never would have had that happen. Like, there's no way in hell Warren Beatty would ever direct a movie he didn't star in. But, like, some of the people he considered were, like, in the weird production of this movie that were considered were, like, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, Tom Selleck, and Mel Gibson. Another great figure we always love talking about. Mm. But, I mean, to be fair, any one of those guys would be more interesting leads than fucking Beatty. Yeah, was... 90s Richard Gere, I don't know. <laughs> like, but I'd rather watch 90s Richard Gere, Dick Tracy, than fucking Warren Beatty. Good God. This film was shot in 45, and it was black and white. He 100% would be the lead in films like this. Yeah. By 1990, it, he seems so old and weird yes. for this role. Or even, like, he originally wanted to do this in, like, 1975 when he was around, like, the shampoo age. Like, he would have, I think, been much better if he had done this, like, around that time. As opposed to this production went so long that he eventually didn't do it until 1990. But regardless, even with that, like, we mentioned so many people just show up in this movie. Like, we mentioned Pacino and Madonna, but, like... Uh, Dustin Hoffman shows up as this character Mumbles. Uh, Paul Servino has the weird lips on his face. I love my favorite is James Kahn, who very clearly came in and was just, just like, "Yes, exactly." Because I'm sure <laughs> yeah. I'm a hundred percent sure Warren Beatty was like, "Hey, uh, you know, James, we really love having you here. We want to put you in, like some prosthetics and stuff." It's like you can put a mustache on me. I'm not wearing whatever the fuck Al's right. wearing. <laughs> I'm not wearing that on my yeah, face. Right. <laughs> Why the fuck does Henry Silva look like that? Get the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> or, or even, I love, I didn't realize this until watching it this time, but like, Catherine O'Hara is in this movie as like an extra, basically. She's one of like the gangster mall people in like the big meeting scene. She's just like there. She's like the one female gangster in there. Yeah, I 
I didn't recognize her, but I recognize that character. Or even, like, Kathy Bates is the stenographer who has, like, two lines and then fucks off the same year she wins her Oscar for Misery. Wow. <laughs> or Dick Van Dyke as the district attorney. It's crazy. Right? I, I'm Sarah, I'm sure. Like, you didn't know much about this going in, right? When people just started popping up, were you like, what? What? <laughs> What's going yeah, on? Yeah, I'm just saying there's, you see Al Pacino, I knew Al Pacino was in this. And then Dustin Hoffman's there. And I'm like, Dustin Hoffman, what are you up to? He's just being weird. And I'm like, cool, 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 cool. Uh, yeah, I kept on while watching be like, that's that. That's that person. That's that person. And as per usual, my boyfriend's like, why do you know all this? <laughs> why can you recognize people? They have full on prosthetics on. I'm like, yeah, but that's. And I'm like, look, it's Dick Van Tyke. <laughs> He's like, wow, cool. <laughs> he kind of just nods. It's nice. <laughs> Adam, I'm curious, who is your favorite of the random people that fucking show up in this movie? Dustin Hoffman is mumbles. So over the top that the way that they're torturing him with the hot light, where his shirt is progressively getting soaked and he's in his underwear and his sock stirrups because he's just baking under this light. And then the whole water scene. Did you get that? Take all that down. The stenographer. And she's like, oh, what? Like, it's just so stupid. But it's great. And it's so unmistakably Dustin Hoffman just from the tone of his voice, like the way he's yelling. Like, oh, yeah, that's Dustin yeah. Hoffman. How? How did they get these guys? Hey, you want to come in? Well, because Warren Beatty was like fucking Hollywood royalty at this time. He was a huge star. Oh, he called in every single favor possible. <laughs> every favor he ever could. A hundred percent. Hey, Paul Servino. Yeah, yeah. Come in here and suck down clams. By the way, uh, next year you're going to be in Goodfellas. So no, good this year he was in Goodfellas. <laughs> this year he was. Yeah, right. Exactly. Which Scorsese turned down directing this. Yes, he did. To do Goodfellas. I'm sure that, it would have been fair. cinema if he had done Yeah, Cinema. Yeah, yeah that's, I, I mean, I think we won out with that. Who do you think is getting the Dick Tracy uh, rights in Beatty's will? Oh, Okay, we have to talk about this because this like Sarah, there's a There's whole life. other thing. Like, are you aware, Sarah, of the Dick Tracy TV special thing? I'm reading the notes as we're talking. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, that was my joke earlier in the show, and I said, yes. uh, you know, portion control of pomegranates. It was this TV special that Warren Beatty had to do because he owns the rights to Dick Tracy still. And in 2009, it was like, hey, you're going to lose the rights unless you make something because he keeps threatening to make a sequel. And he's like, uh, hmm, how about. I do a TV special that'll air on Turner Classic Movies one time and have Leonard Maltin interview, not me, Warren Beatty, but Dick Tracy, the character. <laughs> so he comes in and they're like, oh, makeup. He's like, I don't wear makeup. But Leonard Maltin's like, oh, you don't need it. You look great. Yep. What's your secret? Peace, portion control, and pomegranates. And once in a while, I'll treat myself to a little blueberry. That's literally <laughs> the answer. Yeah. And he's like, well, I'm 107 years old. Wow, you look yeah. great for 107. And then, like, fucking, like, a bunch of recognizable, like, comedic actors are in it. Like, people from Reno 911 show up. Uh, <laughs> Mindy Sterling from the Austin Powers movies. Yeah, yeah, she's in it. Uh, just a bunch of people. And you're like, what the fuck is happening here? The main crux is just, like, Leonard Moulton interviewing Dick Tracy, the character, quote-unquote. And it's a weird mix of just, like, he's at one point talking about, like, oh, here's the history of the comic strip. And it's like, so, Dick Tracy, how did you think the comic strip depicted you? Oh, I think it was great. Such a great fictionalization. And what were the people that portrayed you? Oh, I like the guys in the old serials. But Warren Beatty, he was a bit weird, though. He looks exactly like me, strangely. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> 
I mean, amazing. just the self-belating that's happening on screen. <laughs> and God bless Leonard Maltin, who the entire special, 30-minute special, is just smiling and nodding so politely. <laughs> pure insanity i can see this you can't if you, you want anybody we'll probably link it on like a twitter or something go on youtube watch this weird 30 minute special that fucking exists and he still owns the rights now and he keeps still threatening that's like when he was doing that howard hughes movie a while ago he's like yeah i still want to make a sequel and it's like baby you know what i wanted to do whatever this weird fucking sequel idea at this point is I love that the term we're using is not like he keeps saying he wants to do a sequel. We've literally boiled it down to he's threatening. He's going to make a sequel to Dick Tracy. <laughs> Fucking guy. I, w- I want to ask Sarah in terms of the actual movie to get back to that somehow. Um, how do you think this sort of works as I, you would probably classify this as a neo-noir to some degree, right? Does it fit that kind of like noir pastiche to you? I think this is a film noir. I mean, it is a comic book based off of noir anyways. I I, I wouldn't call this neo-noir. Yeah, just because they do wacky things with, like, prosthetics and colors doesn't make it neo-noir. There's literally a femme fatale and a good girl and a detective and a bad guy. And there's mystery to it. And they uncover things. And they're, and even though the femme fatale ends up being trying to orchestrate the whole thing themselves, that's that's very in line with a film noir. So you would argue this is more of a noir technically than Double Indemnity is? Yes, I would. Yeah, I 100% think so. And now, I know it's a first-time watch, but I had a more fun watching this than I did Double Indemnity. I mean, there, there's a lot of fun to have, especially if you are a noir fan. With Like you mentioned, there's the femme fatale stuff. Like, we haven't talked enough about Madonna, who at this point was around the time where she started becoming an unfair punching bag for like, oh, she was a terrible actress, even though I don't necessarily disagree that she made a lot of bad movies. I, I haven't seen many uh movies with madonna in it but she does a great job here she's yeah. playing marilyn monroe in in noir she's doing right. great this is basically her just going on the material girl music video i am making that a theatrical reality <laughs> with this movie and i think she works perfectly yeah i think she just fits the breathiness and she's singing all the songs by the way, shout out written by steven sondheim another person who was involved with this movie r.i.p king um, but yeah, I, I think like the scenes where she's with Beatty, like you can tell so much that she is carrying the scenes around this guy who's won Oscars and shit for movies where like <laughs> she's be- living up to like her breathless Mahoney character name. And he's just like, uh, excuse me, I'm about to sneeze. <laughs> like, at any of their scenes. like Adam, you got to agree, right? That Madonna is stellar in this movie. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best she's ever done. And anything she's in. I've seen a couple of things she's in. She's absolutely fits the bill perfectly in this movie. Especially to the point that, I mean, well, we already talked about it. He clearly just is not right for the, or doesn't give a shit. But she's just elevating even more invading in the couple scenes. And I agree. He always looks like he's going to sneeze. Like, it's always like, is that fur collar made out of cat hair? (laughs) 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 But. Yeah, no, she's great at man. She works perfectly as the femme fatale. I think the ultimate reveal of who she also is in the movie is great. It's super solid. You get why, you know, all these people would be so enamored with her. Um, she, yeah, she, she sells it perfectly in this movie. She's great as this, yeah, classic femme fatale character. Yeah, I do even love, even though I agree with you, Sarah, that they wrap it up where, like, the whole story of this movie is very odd. But even when we get to the eventual, like, oh, she was actually the faceless character this whole time, I still think she sells the ridiculousness of her death scene. Where she's like, could it have worked out with us? 
and then she like falls over flat <laughs> in like the perfect way for like being a pastiche of these older movies. I think like she is the exact person who's the exact wavelength is on. Like not everyone is on the quite that same wavelength. Like even I love Pacino in this movie. And I don't know if he's going for the, like noir villain as much as just cartoon character. I want to put the scene of him in front of all the money and like holding the money next to the scene of him snorting the mountain of coke. cinematic parallels i thought that was really good uh yeah madonna definitely pulls like a kylo ren at the end of this one which is pretty funny (laughs) but uh (laughs) much better than kylo ren scene on every level better did it better before pre-kylo but uh no yeah pacino's really 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 funny in this just the random like quotes that are (laughs) to the wrong people yes (laughs) He said, he said Lincoln said that something about, like, I forget what the quote was, but saying it was Lincoln saying it was so funny to me, I started cracking up laughing. My favorite is near the end, he gets to, like, Nietzsche. <laughs> Nietzsche. But, but no, my favorite, like, Pacino bit in this movie is when the guy, uh, Michael J. Pollard, another great character actor, is the guy who's, like, trying to uh, mic them and is, like, has, like, the thing accidentally spilled down from, like, the, the second floor that he's on. And Pacino notices it. And he's trying to mouth the words of, it's like, we're being bugged without saying it. And he's just like, I don't know what he's doing with his fucking face. <laughs> but it's so funny. <laughs> it's really good. He, he really is amazing. I mean, everyone looks so cool, except for Beatty. Everyone looks great, except for Beatty. Uh, it's really <laughs> awesome. Um, I love the prosthetics. I thought it was so cool. I didn't at first understand the convention that only the bad characters look like that, but it just it just is so interesting to me. I love that part of this. Yeah, I, I just love in a modern age where we're rightfully kind of questioning stuff like, oh, why do Bond movies still have disfigured villains? This is a movie back then where it's just like, anybody who's remotely like looks weird is evil. They did one bad thing and now their face is like a like silly putty. <laughs> just everyone looks like hey arnold right now it's so good like right from the start with that poker game and those guys are all playing poker and there's like the one guy who has like he's literally called little face because he's just <laughs> yeah. like a giant moon pie face <laughs> it's so ridiculous adam what is your favorite of the makeups i'm curious uh, like i said i do like when Forsyth flat top character uh i think the way they did it even though it's so silly but it, it does make him look very menacing in comparison to a lot of the other ones who are like sight gags you know one guy had like really fat forehead folds that was cool yeah. right yeah yeah but yeah I, I think the little face one is my favorite especially just the way that they carried it off where they basically had a child in a suit from behind Right, and then they just filmed it full screen with this dude's face surrounded by the giant prosthetic, obviously. But I think it just the idea of it is so hilarious. I would still say my favorite is um, Prune Face, played by R.G. Armstrong, who is just like he's like a a shriveled up monster man. (laughs) It's literally what he fucking is, just like in a suit, just like I'm gonna kill Tracy. (laughs) Yeah, Prune Face is great too, and uh, you know the thing is, I like the idea that the villains look like. Uh, they're all weird looking like this in this movie because let's face it when you think about you know old school mafia movies or they all had weird names right like you know jimmy the lips and all this stuff like they all had it so they just took it and made it a hundred percent real like i mean paul servino i would argue is like an exaggerated caricature of like an edward g robinson who we just talked about 
Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'd say that's 100% the idea behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he looks like the Edward G. Robinson Looney Tunes character, you know, the shut up, shutting up. <laughs> like, he looks like that character. I know, mine's probably Forsyth, honestly, because there's still a lot of the actor there, but it's so weird. But like I said, he still looks menacing compared to the other ones. Well, the other ones are kind of just silly and over the top. He He's really menacing to me. Um, well, we, we've talked a while about Dick Tracy. We could for a while, but I'm going to put a stop to it and at least get us into final thoughts if we can summarize our thoughts on Dick Tracy. Sarah, please, your final thoughts on Dick Tracy. I'm sad that there's not more Dick Tracy. I would have loved to see a sequel. Um, even, like, if we did, like, a modern one but kept the same, like, prosthetics and colors and everything, I would be so happy. I really, really, really liked it. Do you want Warren Beatty to go on his threat of making a Dick Tracy sequel? No, <laughs> no. let's do it after Warren Beatty's passed. <laughs> let's um, do it after. Madonna can come back, though. <laughs> she can be the legacy character. She's like the... Yeah. <laughs> she's the Han Solo. Of this <laughs> she's, the, she's the force ghost of this one, yeah. <laughs> Prune face, breathless Mahoney, it's all true. All of it. <laughs> No, I just liked it. I'm just really happy I finally watched it. I appreciate that you guys picked it because I had held off and it was one that I did want to see. Um, Adam, your final thoughts on Dick Tracy. Everything about Dick Tracy, but Dick Tracy is fucking awesome. If you want to see some really good practical effects, fun score, great colors, good matte paintings, cool sort of world building where, you know, to take it back to what you were almost talking about earlier, Thomas, this almost looks like Anytime in movies where they show a studio a lot, where you see all these crazy characters, it looks like if you shit the camera to the left, there's going to be a bunch of gladiators. It's just the ending of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, 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 100%. Like, Godzilla is filming next to them. It's a great, fun movie. It's just, like I said, unfortunately, Warren Beatty is just sapping the energy out of it when he's on screen, um, especially when they give him a lot to do on screen. Like, when he just shows up in shooting scenes, whatever. But anytime he has moments of real dialogue, you're like, oh, fuck, he's awful. But other than that, I think it's a really fun movie. I, I think it's this weird little gem that there's nothing really else like it from this time period that you can watch and really have fun with. Yeah, I would pretty much say, even though there were a lot of other sort of like backlots, like shot movies after this point, even to this day, this feels like the last of like that kind of era of like, this is all shot in like extensive, elaborate sets before we could just digitally paint them in and all this other stuff, like with all matte paintings. It feels like it's kind of like a dying breath of a lot of those old cinematic techniques, while at the same time also feeling very much like a movie that would inspire a lot of, like, modern comic book stuff to a certain degree. Like, even just the marketing of this movie is so weird, where, like, they had so many, like, toys and other things that just unearthed, even though I wasn't around for when this movie was out. There's so much weird merchandise and shit to unearth. Like, I'm Breathless, which is the Madonna album that came out to, like, with some of the songs from here and some other ones on there, um, was the one to promote this movie. The, the last song, the big single off of that, was Vogue fucking Vogue comes from the album related to fucking Dick Tracy. Like, there's that, or even all the way down to, I, I caught this weird ad for, like, a Chevrolet car lot place from Alaska that's Dick Tracy-themed from around this time. <laughs> Where it's, like, the guy's dressed up in, like, the flat-top outfit is just like, oh, we're gonna get you, see? And then the guy who owns the lot's dressed up like Dick Tracy. <laughs> like, that's how weirdly big this movie was, despite not doing well enough for a sequel and kind of disappearing largely in terms of cultural context, except for, like, something like the ASAP Rocky thing. Like, if you caught this when you were a kid, along with, like, I think a lot of people did with, like, the post-Batman sort of craze for, like, that kind of weird comic book movie, like, I think it'll stick with you just because it's, like, so fascinating. Even for, like, a Sarah, 
who was just new to it now, um, it still was like a fascinating artifact. If nothing else, even if you don't love it, it's still just like a weird, bizarre, fascinating thing from another time. Yeah, it's not boring. Like, you can't be bored by this. You're like, even if you dislike it. Even if you're not liking everything, you're just like, what the fuck? Why is Mandy Patankin singing a song in the middle of this movie? <laughs> it's just it's, weird shit. All right. Yeah. It's uh, unique. Like, yes. I've not seen something that unique in a while. That's why it reminds me of Speed Racer so much, too, is because it's just visually so unique. Another movie that flopped spectacularly, but has gained a lot more of a cult following, I would agree. Like, if you like Speed Racer, if you're part of that cult, like I would say I am Sarah evidently is, definitely seek this movie out. I, I showed it to my uh, sister recently, just randomly, I think during Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving, and she loved it too. I'm like, yes, I got another one. It's one I want to get Adam on that same train. We need to cover it on the show at some point. But that's a discussion for another day because we do have another segment here. We're going to try and at least breeze through a bit, which is our double redo, where each week Adam and I program uh, the best and worst possible double feature related to the topic of the week every time. So each of us uh, have, you know, two good movies, two bad movies, at least Adam and I. Sarah, I know you have a couple recommendations, but you weren't going to go full board. I have two recommendations. Right. Yes, we'll um, you? have you recommend those for sure. Uh, but first, okay. we'll go ahead and start uh, with, I'm going to do mine, then Adam will do his, and then you'll do yours. Uh, just first for me, um, I'm going to say my two good ones. Uh, first, they have A Lonely Place, which is a movie that stars Humphrey Bogart and is about like a washed-up screenwriter in 1950. And I think this one kind of fits in a similar way to Double Indemnity, where it's sort of like, it's more of a, like a domestic drama with a lot of noir elements around it. Because um, he's this washed-up screenwriter who um, has one of, like, the secretaries from the studio come over and, like, pitch him the novel that he needs to adapt into a screenplay. And then she leaves, and someone else in the apartment, this woman, notices, like, her leaving. And the next day, that secretary ends up dead. And so Humphrey Bogart is, like, hounded about, like, oh, did you kill her? Did you kill her? And the neighbor in the apartment who saw them, like basically her leave, is roped into the investigation and then her and Bogart start to grow a romantic relationship. But what I like is the fact that that would be in any other noir movie, that could be the point where it's like, oh, they have like this whirlwind romance and it becomes like at the end, it's like, oh, everything's breaking apart. From minute one, Bogart is like a monster person. And I think it's a really fascinating domestic drama between the two of them. And it shows like Bogart had a lot more reigns than just being the Casablanca guy. And Gloria mm -hmm. Graham, who you might recognize from It's a Wonderful Life, um, is spectacular as well. And I think he does a great job of showing, especially like a lot of early stuff with gaslighting and a woman being like sort of trapped in this like domestic situation that she wants to be traditional, but is like completely falling apart at the seams. It does a spectacular job with that, I would argue. And I think is one that you know I had heard of, but never seen until recently. I think it's really great. Um, and then the other good one I have is The Lady from Shanghai, which is a movie directed and starring Orson Welles. It's basically about him playing this guy who's um, a sailor who ends up uh, being recruited onto this boat by Rita Hayworth in a, a glorious performance from her, where he's basically roped on to this boat and he ends up basically in this scheme where one of the guys who's running the boat is like, hey, I want you to murder somebody for me. You know who I want you to murder? Me. I want you to kill me. And then you'll get like $5,000 off and you can live forever with Rita Hayworth, however you want. And we can blame <laughs> it on her husband. And it's a great little movie. I think it has like a lot of stellar turns from everybody. And it's Orson Welles. Admittingly, he's doing a weird Irish accent. That's pretty fucking bad. I'm not going to lie. But I still find it 
fascinating that he's just engaged with the character and with the direction despite the fact that he's doing this terrible accent and i think it's just a stellar little movie that he did like not too long after citizen kane that kind of got lost in the dust but i think deserves a bit more of a reappraisal um and then my two bad ones very quickly i have my alternate choice that i was going to do was the bad one which was gangster squad gangster squad (laughs) yes a much worse (laughs) movie um that if you don't remember this it was like a big ensemble cast movie came out in 2013 like ryan gosling's in it emma stone um, Anthony mm-hmm. Mackie, Josh Brolin, Sean Penn plays like the big gangster heavy, and it's so dull and it's so <laughs> unwatchable. Basically, how do you ruin Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone together? They're always so good together. You make Ryan Gosling do whatever fucking accent he's doing in that movie. <laughs> it's such <laughs> a shame. They're so good together in other movies. Yeah, this is just the one where it's just like, oof, guys, this is. Not working out. Um, and the other bad one I know is a movie you've seen, Sarah, from an old podcast you used to do. And it's a movie I saw at way too young an age, probably around the same time as Dick Tracy. Um, I have Cool World, which is very <laughs> neo noir and basically is like the Roger Rabbit influence um, is definitely there. But it's like, hey, what if we do yeah. that? But it's seedier and there's sex involved and young Brad Pitt's in it. And um, it's an infamous mess of a movie, a huge disaster. I like Cool World. <laughs> that's right yes that's true from that podcast you really did cool world. but uh it's been a while since i've seen it i'd be curious to revisit because if nothing else that's another very unique movie that like, no one will ever make again we should have just did roger rabbit and cool world together i mean we you know we could have that that could have been an let's option. go back let's scrap this <laughs> Burn <it to> the <laughs> ground. we're starting over but yeah i mean sarah you, you've started your coming i mean i don't know have you seen the two good ones no I knew about Lady from Shanghai. I, I have not seen uh, the first one that you said. A Lonely Place. I have not seen it. Didn't even know about it. Okay. Uh, Adam, what about you? Are you aware of any of these? Yeah. I've seen all four. The first two I have not seen in a long, long time. Those are definitely part of my, when I was going back and sort of following and finding anything noir that I could. Me and my brother actually did it. Um, so I've only seen the first, the good two once. I'd love to go back to them. I remember being pretty favorable on both. Uh, Gangster Squad is a complete piece of shit waste. <laughs> it, it, for all involved. I mean, the actors, the audience, everything. It, it's just, it's terrible. And Cool World, I really want to like Cool World. There is not an inch of me that can. There's just so it's, much going on. It's, I get it. It's so overtly horny <laughs> that it's just I. Uh, and Brad, oh yeah, nah, I'm good. I'm good on Cool World. I, I, I imagine yeah. like seven-year-old Thomas watching that movie and hearing the phrase "Who here would have sex with a tune?" And it was oh, just like such a weird moment. <laughs> you were just busting out of your Oshkosh bagosh. <laughs> confused it's like my dad was like oh you like roger rabbit i'm sure like what it's like noir and cartoons you'll like it. it's rather yeah rather just like roger rabbit yeah have you seen this have you heard about this <laughs> dad's jay leto apparently yeah um, that's the secret that's who's bankrolling these podcasts <laughs> jay leto. between spending money on cars he spends money on this podcast but not that, that much More no on cars. no he's doing the one dollar patreon that's what he does <laughs> so all right, I'll go quick with mine. Just get them out of the way. Uh, I'll start with my bad because I don't have a lot to say about them. Uh, my first bad is Hollywoodland with Adrian Brody and Ben Affleck. It's the mm-hmm. sort of the retelling of the death of George Reeves, who played Superman in the original serials, um, and sort of the mystery behind it and how it went. Sounds like a cool idea. 
very fucking boring. Uh, not like Gangster Squad boring, but it's pretty fucking boring. And this was right like when Adrian Brody was like in everything for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, and my second bet, I have Sin City 2, A Dame to Kill For. There are many reasons why I could put this on here. One, Jessica Alba's drunk acting. Hilarious. But probably Brolin wearing mm. prosthetics to try to make him look like Clive Owen. <laughs> um, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. It is ridiculous. The movie sucks. It's not, none of the magic of the original is back. Uh, it, everyone's tired and bored. It's, it's not, it's not even worth your time. Uh, and the box office would tell you that as well. Um, and then for my good ones, I have LA confidential, great cast, uh, except for, you know, Kevin Spacey, fuck, but, um, excellent cast. It's just, it's super fun. Very noir. I love Danny DeVito as the sort of seedy reporter character. I love that the two archetypes of the noir detective are in there with the one who plays by the book. And then you got the one loose cannon and they almost switch halfway through the movie. It's a very, very cool, very fun. And then uh, I also have uh, Ryan Johnson's brick, um, which is like a, a basically an old school noir movie told in a modern setting in high school. And yet they still speak an old sort of, 40s and 50s uh, lingo, super solid, very great acting all around from everybody in it. Um, if you have not seen that, that is one I highly, highly recommend and have since I've seen it when I saw it in an art theater when it first came out. I think The Brick is one of the most underseen, undersung sort of champions of the modern noir genre. I've known oh. that I need to see Brick, and oh. my sister has talked about Brick a lot to me, but I didn't know that they spoke like that that yeah, yeah. is really cool that might convince me to go watch it oh you you'd love it if you like noir movies as much as you say you do i i cannot see you not liking brick brick if i don't fun. like it i'm a i'm a poser so oh no well, you're right <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. such a fake noir girl <laughs> um but have you seen the other ones that you mentioned i have seen la confidential i haven't seen the first scene city either I mean, Hollywood Land I know of, but I couldn't be bothered to watch it. Yeah, I remember Hollywood Land. That was the one, the, the most distinctive memory I have about that is that was around the time after, like, the Gigli Benefer stuff where Ben Affleck was kind of trying to come back a bit and no one cared about that particular movie. So it yeah. didn't yes. really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, it didn't really come back for him. Um, Sin City 2, I agree, is, like, such a dismal, disappointing thing. It's so sad, especially if you want to see, like, the complete destruction of Mickey Rourke's comeback. Watch Sin City and Sin City 2, and just the contrast is so sad. <laughs> Where, like, he's so great in the first Sin City, and then by 2, it's, like, deep in, he doesn't care anymore, and he was burned by, like, Iron Man 2 and other bullshit, so he's just like, I don't care at all. <laughs> and he's returning to that role. It's such a bummer. Um, But we've talked about Brick on the show, and I agree, I still love that movie. It's been a while since I've seen L.A. Confidential, I think because of the spacey of it all. At the same time, I remember loving it. I, I especially, um, I'll just say, uh, James Cromwell, my fave, is so good in that movie. I, I just love that he's plays a very familiar kind of character with like in everything that happens with him later on. But I, I love that whole performance. Um, but Sarah, you have your choices, so why don't you go ahead and uh, recommend those out? Please watch Murder My Sweet. The difference between a film like Murder, My Sweet being a noir and these films that we watch today is that 
were we were missing a lot of the playing with the shadows and the playing with like mirrors and stuff that Murder My Sweet has that a lot of noir does have. Uh, but that's par- probably my favorite part of film noirs is seeing the lights and shadows playing ag- across people's faces as they're walking in down city streets and like the reflections in in like rainy puddles on the on the street too like all of that is kind of missing from uh both films we watch murder my sweet has that and i it's beautiful uh you can see like characters faces in mirrors and then the the neon lights that he's looking out at the window that kind of stuff is so cool and murder my sweet has that like 10 times my second one is jessica jones season one do you guys see that, Jessica Jones? I did see Definitely. that one. That was the one season of that show I saw. Jessica Jones is a perfect noir because she is playing the detective character and her own femme fatale. And she was a she's basically a femme fatale fixed. You know, I don't know what the best word for that is, but she was redeemed and all that. Yeah, yeah. That becomes a drunken detective that has a good girl character that is her best friend that finds another femme fatale you know what i mean like that whole season's just so cool like i you'll, you'll never see that in anything else and i know it's based off the comics which was doing that alias but was it called alias i think so i'm sorry yes. jessica jones ak yeah. something like that yeah uh it was really cool i love seeing it it was beautiful great great remix on it and combination of superpowers with that yeah i mean i'll say that i I haven't seen um the 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 first one as like we mentioned earlier at the beginning of this uh episode but i mean i'll say this much to relate to your uh thing with like playing with shadows and stuff just to briefly go back to one of my picks uh with the lady from shanghai the whole climax takes place in a carnival and i guess Mm -hmm. you were bummed by nightmare alley oh boy (laughs) so many like play if you want mirror shots oh boy they go to a hall of mirrors i am not bummed by nightmare alley because of aesthetics like visually it does all of that and it does it beautifully right but i mean if you want i guess more of that in a classic style i would say definitely yeah late from shanghai does that but with um the jessica jones element of it i only saw that season and i mean i adam and i have talked off mike about how that netflix marvel experiment was such a weird eventual ultimate like crumbling failure but of the stuff i saw which was everything prior to the defenders and then Defenders just fucked in my interest in any of that other bullshit. Uh, that first season of Jessica Jones was my favorite. I had a couple problems with, like, the one military-themed guy and his origin was, like, my one problem with that season. Otherwise, I think it's immaculate. Particularly, I think I agree that um, Kristen Ritter is phenomenal as Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, David Tennant as the Purple Man is yeah. one of the more terrifying villains in that sort of vague marvel continuity even though i'm sure those like what 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 jessica jones what what other things charlie cox is the only thing that exists that we'll reference i guess at some point uh like i said i'm pretty sure i've seen murder my suite it's been forever i definitely want to go back and revisit it now especially so i can redeem myself in sarah's eyes because that is the most important thing to me (laughs) and then jessica jones season one yeah no i i really like jessica jones season one i i expected to for some reason i've never been a big fan of the jessica jones character but i was getting burned by some of the other ones so i was like all right i'll I'll just go back and watch it i think i watched that one right before defenders and i really thoroughly enjoyed it no i i absolutely agree with uh jessica jones i think it's great sarah did you even bother with the other seasons they did 
And were those any good? Did I watch the second season of Jessica Jones? I think I did, but it was a long time ago. It didn't stick with me if I did. I didn't watch past that, though. Okay. I watched all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Does it get much better? Does it it continue that great streak in the next seasons after that, Adam? No, because I don't remember any of it. (laughs) No, yeah, I don't remember any of it. Because her friend supposed to be cheetah right and or no, what, she, no, she's wildcat i think wildcat yeah, yeah 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 and i never saw that happen yeah you as far as i remember you don't really see it happen quite a bit in the second season either like okay. she's just got the powers and blah 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 but then it's a whole bunch of bullshit so well um before we uh head out of here with the segment we, we like to repeat our titles just quickly so i'll go ahead and do that briefly with mine in case you missed them um, my two good were A Lonely Place and The Lady from Shanghai, and then my two bad were Gangster Squad and Cool World. My two good were Brick and L.A. Confidential, and my bad was Hollywood Land and Sin City 2, A Dame to Kill For. And my only recommendations were Murder My Sweet, I have to enunciate that, and Jessica Jones Season 1. From the diaphragm. Great. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, that is the end of our uh, reduced segment. Definitely submit yours if you have any recommendations for uh, film noir, and we'll definitely talk about them on the show. Uh, but uh, let's head into the exit for our show, uh, where we'll be doing our picking at the very end. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but first, though, uh, we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for the art for our show. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. It's night with a K underscore of underscore water on Twitter. For more of his great stuff and a link tree where you can find his stuff. And also thanks to our Patreon subscribers over at patreon.com slash gedbpod where for just $1 a month uh, you get access to uh, polls where you can vote for movies and topics we do. And also bonus podcasts. Like for example, um, around the time uh, that this will be out, uh, there should be a bonus episode that we recorded with a uh, patron and friend of the, the regular show, Rafe Telsch, uh, where we talked about the entire Matrix trilogy. So uh, Matrix, Matrix Reloaded, and Matrix Revolutions. Uh, We had a lot of fun. Uh, That's the big bonus podcast episode for this month and right before Matrix Resurrections, which we're bound to cover by the uh, end of the year. We'll be uh, talking about both uh, Nightmare Alley and Spider-Man No Way Home on our show On the Edge of Relevance, where we talk about newer movies uh, that have come out. So we'll talk about those and Matrix Resurrections, of course. But um, we thank all of you patrons for doing that, of course, including Sarah herself sarah thank you so much for being a patron and being a guest on this show despite all of the hardships you had behind the scenes recording it uh please uh go ahead and promote yourself well, what do you want to plug i want to plug film cred film cred is a website <laughs> film cred is a film criticism and analysis site that uh helps support new writers and gives thoughtful feedback pretty stringent editing to so that they can uh do better in the film criticism industry. That's it. Just follow film cred. <laughs> I mean, there's also sequels, which you're no. co-hosted. No, no, uh, we don't want to promote that. No, that's fine. <laughs> you don't listen to that show with friends of the show, Ally and Shaquille as well. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> oh. uh, but I do genuinely want to say, while we've been joking around and bullshit, um, I've written some stuff for film cred. I'm not one of those necessarily beginner writers, quote unquote. I just write random shit that Sarah and her editing team lets me do on there. I appreciate you for giving me that outlet. But also in general, um, I love the people that you've amassed for the staff writers and everybody. I'm a fan of the Discord, which if you're a patron, you can become part of the Discord for film cred. 
Um, and I, I love that community and I love like just reading all these different, uh, voices, just like have an outlet for that. I think you fostered a great talented group of people, Sarah, and I legitimately am very proud of what you've done with it. We've amassed that community by literally just being open to any pitch that came our way. That's true. Yes. Uh, And, and other sites should do the same because they could have something like that too. Mike, drop a representative. (laughs) Shots fired. (laughs) For sure. For sure. But um, for more of our rinky dink operation, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Um, and uh, you can also uh, send us feedback, doubleedgedevilbill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool. You can help us out by buying some merchandise with our logo on it. Um, you can buy like a t-shirt or a mug or all sorts of other things with our uh, logo. Helps us out, gets us a bit of a kickback if you buy some of that stuff. Um, and that would really help out them if they did what? Yeah, buy your merch. Yeah, buy your merch. See? Yeah, oh, no, we're driving away any business <laughs> <laughs> on the ESOT public store, please. <laughs> this is not like that Alaskan Chevrolet ad at all for Dick Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But uh, for more of our own individual antics, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd is at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing on both filmcred.com, which we should mention is film-cred.com is the web address. And uh, also I do some writing at my own blog, marianithomas.wordpress.com. Uh, for that regular blog, check out, I'll probably have a West Side Story review up. I have a lot of thoughts about that one. And also for Film Cred, by the end of the month, I'll be uh, putting out a review for Chucky Season 1. I didn't approve that. Sarah will get that on her desk, just like, get the fuck out of my face. Vetoed. <laughs> you can find me on uh, Twitter or Instagram at Adam or Adam, that's A-T-E-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M or on Letterboxd at Schwanson, that's S-C-H-W-A-N-T-T-S-O-N Yes, and for more of us, uh, please uh, subscribe or follow, I think is the new thing on Apple Podcasts. I don't know, we're old. We're going to say subscribe. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network, or you can dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for a bunch of shows we did even before ESO. And if you can't buy the merch or you can't support us on the Patreon, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around. That gets us more visibility out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could go the route I do to find the show. I go to Ask Jeeves or Bing or any of that. That's how I find the show. Leave a little tip at the tip jar. Uh, you know, just whatever you got to do. You go to all the user net sites where everybody's talking about it. 100%. Yep, yep. I read a really good review on Angel Fire from the guy <laughs> named Lightsaber6969. Uh, well, with all those archaic internet references, we need to get the hell out of here. So we're getting things with doing our picking for next week's episode, as we do every week uh, at the end. We um, go ahead, Adam or I each have two good picks or two bad picks. We switch up on the quality. We've assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for each of those. I have the two good, and Adam has the two bad for this upcoming episode. Um, and uh, we each uh, will pick them between 1 and 10, and that gets the good and bad feature. But keep in mind that we also have a new thing called the Godfather Rule, where Adam and I each have a single veto in our back pocket to use from now until our next anniversary in May. Um, that veto uh, can be used if someone says, say, Adam says one of his bad choices, and I'm like, hmm, I don't want to actually cover that choice, Adam. So actually... I'll take the cannoli. Thus, that choice is gone, and I have to go with whatever other choice Adam hasn't mentioned yet as the other bad choice. And uh, we decided, uh, thanks to our patrons 
at patreon.com slash pod. They voted for us to do musicians turned actors as a topic, which we've mulled over for a while. And, you know, we talked about a really good example of that with Madonna on this very episode. So uh, mm-hmm. we could continue that streak with my good pick and whatever bad pick Adam has. I'm very curious. But first, Sarah, since you're our guest, please pick number between one and ten for my two good choices. Seven. Okay. Over at number six, I have one from someone who admittingly, even when she made this particular movie, was also kind of a film person. But she was mostly known as a musician. And she's definitely done a lot more sort of singing and stuff uh, before and after this point, despite her solid Is film it J-Lo? No, it's not J-Lo. Um, It's much more old school than that. I have Barbra Streisand in What's Up, Doc? Mm. What the fuck? (laughs) Not uh, Mirror Has Two Faces? No, not Mirror Has Two Faces. What's Up, Doc? From the 70s. I've honestly never even heard of this movie. Oh. I've heard of it. So, okay. I I won't take the cannoli based on just pure uh, curiosity. Mm. Interestingly, it's the follow-up Peter Bogdanovich did to The Last Picture Show which we cover on the show, though, it's a lot more humorous and a comedy than that. So we'll be talking all about that next time, I guess. Uh, but my other pick, over at number three, I had another one that's... <laughs> this is just, just a weird choice, and it, I think it would have been fascinating to cover. Someone who's definitely not an actor, but I like this movie a lot, despite how very bizarre it is. I have Weird Al in UHF. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, take away the Michael Richards of it all, but it's still great. Well, that's true. But yeah, that's that's a pretty fun movie. We might talk about it at some point in the future. But Sarah, for Adam's two bad choices, please number between one and ten. Eight. All right. This movie came out in 2019. I know of at least three singers, musicians, turned actors in it. That would be Jennifer Hudson, Jason Derulo, and Taylor Swift. Oh my Weird. god. The clusterfuck that is cats. Oh boy. Oh. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no. Believe me. Look, I have the option to take the cannoli and completely veto this choice. I am not. I can't wait. I've been waiting to talk about cats for like two years now. Oh, no. <laughs> I, no, I am. I am pumped. I love the train wreck of cats. I can't wait. I can't wait to talk about this. I am so excited. Okay, but what was your other choice, Adam? At number three, I had what would probably be considered a uh, noir film starring Mark Wahlberg and Ludacris and Nelly Furtado. I have Max Payne. Oh, good Okay, I saved you. I'm much better with cats, yeah. <laughs> we lucked the fuck out. Uh, but yeah, so, yeah, what's up, Doc and cats? Very interesting <laughs> double feature. Well, that's the that's the love of this show. Just we do weird shit like that. But until next time, everybody, uh, make sure to um, spruce up your weird prosthetic faces because you're beautiful out there, no matter if you're a prune face or not. Yeah, wow. hey, it's all good, baby. Uh, Warren Beatty, though, you, you lost cause. Your face is <laughs> fucked. Oh no. Warren's such a big fan. Oh, no, darn. Oh, crap. Well, we're going to lose this Patreon dollar so we can go buy more belt buckles. <laughs> This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. 
Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.